We're going to continue our study in Matthew. So you can turn to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. We've been coming through the book of Matthew together. And this morning we're at Matthew 4, verse 12 through 25. Let's ask the Lord to help us this morning. Father, thank you so much for your word. Lord, you, we're your people and you have blessed us. You've blessed us, God, with your word. God, I pray that you would help us this morning to lean in and have ears to hear. Give us ears to hear. Father, show us Christ and all his glory as the light of the world, as our Savior. Show us Christ. And God, I pray that you would give us hearts to obey. God, give us hearts that receive your word, not as just mere hearers of the truth but as doers of your word make us doers this morning we love you lord in jesus name amen all right before we get to our passage i want to mention something to you in isaiah so first 12 chapters of isaiah you imagine the prophet isaiah he's writing these things this is about almost 800 years before Christ comes to the world. So 800 years before Christ. And you read through Isaiah in the first 12 chapters is this scathing rebuke toward the people of Israel. It's, it's stuff like this. It's hero heavens and give ear O earth for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up but they have rebelled against me. He says things like that. Oh, sinful nation. It says in Isaiah 1 through 12. It, he compares them to Sodom and Gomorrah in chapter 1, verse 10. He can go on and, and continue in chapter 1. He, he calls them a whore. He says all these things of really just scathing rebukes and a pronouncement that a judgment is going to come down on these people. And that's 12 chapters of Isaiah. Now, in the midst of all that, there's these little glimmers of a hope that's to come. Now, remember, this is 800 years or, or, or so before Christ came. And there's these, there's these little glimmers like Isaiah 7:14, where he mentions this uh, child that's going to be born of a virgin and will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Or Isaiah 9, 6, when it mentions uh, uh, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And it says that he'll take on the, the throne of David. He will be king. He'll be called mighty God, wonderful counselor, everlasting father, prince of peace. In chapter 11, verse 1, is told this little glimmer of hope that there's coming one from the, the branch, a branch from Jesse. And Jesus actually quotes that 
scripture in Isaiah 11 later on where it, where it says the spirit of the Lord is upon me and the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor and it goes on. So this, it's this scathing rebuke and this pronouncement that judgment is coming on these people and yet you have these little glimmers of hope that there's coming one born of a virgin, virgin God with us, mighty God, a king sitting on the throne of David. He's coming And right in the midst of that, I want to read this to you. Isaiah chapter 9. It's verse 1 and 2. Now keep in mind, the last two words of chapter 8 says, Thick darkness. Because that's the world they were in. That's what they were walking in. Thick. Chapter 8, verse 22, last two words. They were walking in thick darkness. But... Chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for who was in anguish, for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Keep this in mind because Matthew's going to quote this verse in just a minute as we read it. In the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Think about Israel. In the north, you've got that northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Is ever divided? You know that from reading your Old Testament. And in the north, you've got Galilee and in the middle, Samaria. And down south, you've got Judah where Jerusalem is. And this is talking about up north in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. In Galilee of the Gentiles, it says here. It says they were in contempt, but in latter times, look at it, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness, thick darkness, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. Those in thick darkness, those in deep darkness, on them light has dawned. In our passage today, Matthew's going to say, that's about Christ. That great light is that one born of a virgin, Emmanuel, God with us, sitting on the throne of David as king forever. And Matthew's going to let us know that that's who this is referring to. So back to Matthew chapter 4, or finally to Matthew chapter 4. As we get ready to read this, what we're seeing in Matthew 4, verse 12 through the end of the chapter, is Jesus' ministry in Galilee. Galilee is mentioned over and over and over. This area that we just read about in Isaiah 9. A great light's coming there. Well, Galilee is mentioned over and over and over again throughout this passage. Now keep in mind, it's interesting. John 7, 52, you've got the Pharisees. Remember, they're looking at Nicodemus saying, Can a prophet arise out of Galilee? Can a prophet come out of Galilee? And this is where he shines his light. Now we're going to take this passage in three parts. In three parts. So number one, and we're about to read it together, is verse 12 through 17. Number one, verse 12 through 17. And this is a great light dawns in Galilee. A great light dawns in Galilee. Look at it. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, 
He withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So great light dawns in Galilee. And this, this passage is referred to Jesus' return to Galilee. He's, he's been baptized. He's, been, he's had this holy affirmation from the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. This is the Messiah. This is the one. He's been tempted in the wilderness. He's been with John. Then he's been tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. And now he's returning to Galilee, that northern kingdom, that north part of Israel. Now, he was born and raised here in a town called Nazareth. What we're going to read, what we just read is how he left Nazareth in Galilee to go to another town in Galilee called Capernaum. And what it says here is that he enters into Capernaum. And why does this happen? It says that it might be fulfilled with the prophet Isaiah said, a great light in the thick darkness. Now, verse 12 tells us the timing of this. Look at verse 12. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. So what's the timing here? When John was arrested. Now, it doesn't tell us why John was arrested here, but we know from other places in the scriptures that John took that boldness that we've been talking about. That rawness he had to preach the truth with boldness and courage. Well, he took that to the king. He told the king all the evil things that he'd done, and they didn't like that, and other people didn't like that, so they threw him into prison, and eventually they're going to cut his head off. And this is a good reminder to us that here we are Sunday after Sunday as we're coming through Matthew 3 and Matthew 4, and we're telling you, brothers and sisters, we need to imitate John. And so what we're saying is we need to imitate this one that has been arrested that will be beheaded. We need to imitate him. We need to imitate that guy. Yes, and, and listen to me. 2 Timothy 3, 12. It says, all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Doesn't mean everyone's arrested. Doesn't mean everyone's beheaded. But it definitely means if you, if you walk in godliness, that's a promise, you will suffer persecution. It's a reminder to us. If we're going to imitate John the Baptist, we need to know there's a cost that comes with that. If you want to live a, a soft and, and, and cozy life with no persecution and no hardship, don't be like John. Don't be courageous with your voice. Don't preach the truth. Even when it's hated. Don't do that. If you don't do that, you'll live a cozy and safe and nice life. Now, verse 13. It says, and leaving Nazareth. You see it? And leaving Nazareth. And so we know that Jesus first, when he first returns to Galilee, he first goes back to his hometown to Nazareth. Now, why did he leave there? Again, if you, look, if you look at the parallel passage in Luke 4, 
You see why he left there. He goes to Nazareth, Luke chapter 4. You can go read about it. And when he gets into Nazareth, he goes into the synagogue. He takes the scroll. He reads Isaiah 11 that I referenced a moment ago. And he says, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. And he goes on to preach to them. And they hated it. And in his own hometown, they reject him and attempt to throw him off a cliff. So he leaves Nazareth. And he goes to Capernaum. Now, that's what it says here in verse 13. It mentions the region of Galilee. It mentions the region of uh, the land of, of Naphtali and Zebulun. It mentions these regions. But then it says he lands in this city, Capernaum. A city that it says is by the sea. It's by the Sea of Galilee. This is a, a fishing hotspot. Not for a hobby, but as a job. A lot of fishermen lived here in Capernaum. Now, why does Jesus make this place, Capernaum, why does he make it his home base? Why does Jesus make this his home base? I've already given you one reason that he was rejected in Nazareth. But this passage of scripture, verses 14 through 16, give us a more foundational reason for why he made Capernaum his home base. And what it tells us here is that this was a fulfillment of prophecy, specifically a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 and 2, that we just read a moment ago. So look at it. Verse 14. Why did he go there? Verse 14. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. It goes on to mention that land. Verse, verse 16. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. Those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them light has dawned. So Jesus is spoken of here as a great light. Now it's an interesting thing. If you go back to that John 7.52 I mentioned a moment ago, where the Pharisees look at Nicodemus and say, no prophet, what prophet comes out of Galilee? And they'll go look, go look at the next thing Jesus says. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. I'm the light of the world. A light shall dawn here. This is, this is Isaiah's prophecy. A light will dawn in this place. Jesus is the light. The world is darkness. Wickedness, evil, sin, it prevails. The world is darkness, but Jesus is spoken of here as pure and penetrating light. He is, when Jesus enters into the world, he is light penetrating the darkness. He's light invading the darkness. He's light taking over the darkness. He's still doing that now. His people become children of light, and through his people, he is overtaking the darkness. He's a fulfillment of what it says here in Isaiah. A light has dawned. Now I want you to notice that it says that. It says in, in, in verse, at the end of verse 16, it says a light has dawned. He is the, 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 the dawning of the light happened in Capernaum. Now what does it mean? Uh, uh, the dawn is that, you know, before, when the sun's rising, it's that first light you see before you can even see the sun. But you notice... It gets brighter and that first, that dawn, that first little light that comes up and you know the sun is about to rise and it's about to be full ablaze in the sky. The dawning of the light began in Capernaum. Once you think about that, Genesis chapter 3, all of humanity in Genesis 3, all of humanity is plunged into sin and darkness. But in Galilee, we see the first glimmer of that light 
that's going to penetrate the darkness. He's, the dawning happens at Capernaum, but the sun will continue to rise. Malachi 4 says the sun, S-U-N, the sun of righteousness will come with healing in his wings. So the dawning happens in Capernaum. And then what we see as we keep coming through our passage is, th- is that that light begins to shine everywhere. And people are coming from all the regions surrounding Capernaum and surrounding Galilee. By the time we get to the end of this book of Matthew, he looks at his disciples and says, go make disciples in all the nations in the world. We see it unfold in the book of Acts as the gospel spreads and spreads and spreads. Light is spreading to the ends of the earth. And by the end of time, Revelation tells us that people from every nation, tribe, and tongue will bow down to King Jesus. And the glory of the Lord will fill the earth like the water fills the sea. But it's going to dawn first light here in Capernaum. Now, this is a huge vision, right? That it's dawning in Capernaum, but man, it's about to be shining all over the world. It's going to fill the earth with Christ's glory. It's a huge vision. How will Jesus do this? How will he do it? He's got to come up with some message that's way more sophisticated than what John the Baptist preached, right? Wrong. Look at the next verse here. Nothing fancy. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So what does he preach? What does he use to bring in the light? He's Listen to me. Listen to me. He's preaching the same message John preached. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's preaching. The same, this is the message that the church would go on to preach. Acts 2. Repent and be baptized. Every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. It's the message that we're to preach. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Nothing fancy. Just what that wild man John preached. He's preaching the same thing. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now let's, let's dissect that just a little bit. Okay. So it mentions the kingdom. So what is he? We see what he preaches in verse 17. He mentions the kingdom here. Now, to understand the kingdom, if you understand your Old Testament, you understand this reference to the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And here's what here's what I mean by that. All through the Old Testament, it spoke about a coming king. From the line of David, God promised David, David, one's going to sit on the throne from your seed that's going to be king forever. The verse we read a moment ago, or I quoted a moment ago in Isaiah chapter 9, unto us a son is born, unto us a child is given. He's going to be mighty God and he'll sit on David's throne. It's been a promise all the way through our Old Testament. A king is coming, a king is coming. And he won't die like the other kings. All through Old Testament, we've been told that that king is going to have this expanding kingdom. Like you read the prophet Daniel, and it says it's like a little stone, not cut by men, but a little stone that that slams into that statue and breaks up all the nations. And that little stone becomes a great mountain that fills the whole earth. The whole Old Testament has been talking about this king that's coming and his expanding, eternal, glorious, beautiful kingdom. He will rule and reign over all the earth. And Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
The king has arrived. The kingdom has been brought near. Jesus is preaching the Christ as he is the Christ. Now, Jesus also says, repent. Now, think about this. How do you, you think about that King Jesus and his expanding eternal kingdom. How do you enter into that kingdom? How do you enter in? You don't cross a border with a passport. How do you enter into this kingdom? You come under the rule and the reign of this king. That's what repentance is. Think about the connection. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. How do you do that? How do you enter in? You repent. You come under his rule and reign. And this is what he's calling people to, to repent. What keeps you away from the kingdom? Your sin. Your sin keeps you away from the kingdom. Turn away from your sin. Turn away from evil. Turn away from your own ways, your own selfishness. Get off the throne. And come under the rule and reign of King Jesus and enter in to his kingdom. Now, this this is what Jesus preached. Brothers and sisters, Church of Jesus Christ, What do we preach? Are you personally? What what do you preach? This is what Jesus preached. What do you preach? Now you notice when John preaches it, when Jesus preaches it, this is not a softy, feel-good message. And there's all kind of temptations to soften this message. There's all kind of temptations in our world to make it more, more palatable. To make it easier to swallow, to soften it up a little bit. There's all kinds of temptations. Brothers and sisters, don't fall for it. Don't fall for it. Listen to me. If you lose this message, you lose the light. If you don't preach this message and it's watered down and you don't preach preach the, the King Jesus and His kingdom and repent to enter that kingdom, if you don't preach that, you lose the light. You're no longer a light to this world. You're just saying soft and comfortable things into the darkness until people are comforted into hell. I plead with you, don't lose this message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's what Jesus preached. Now, second section here is verse 18 through 22. I'm about to read this. And this is Jesus making disciples in Galilee. So light has dawned in Galilee, and now we see him making disciples in Galilee. Let's read it together. Verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. Casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat. And their father and followed him. Jesus making disciples in Galilee. So again, just for a second, consider the big picture here. Consider the big vision. The light has dawned in Galilee. It's dawned in Capernaum. The sun of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. It's about to shine the glory of Christ over the entire world. 
How are you going to do it, Lord? How are you going to do it? Surely he's got to get some really influential people, right? No, four fishermen that live in the middle of nowhere. Four fishermen that live in the middle of nowhere. Not necessarily a, a, a you know, world-changing uh, group of people here. Not a world-changing force. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. This made me think of Matthew 13, verse 31 and 32, where Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like that little seed. A little mustard seed, smallest of the little bitty seed. It seems like nothing, but it's planted and becomes this massive tree. He said the kingdom of heaven is like that. There's something encouraging about that, that Jesus is, the light's dawning, and it's going to be an all-nations bright light. And there's something encouraging, especially when you think about your own ministry to serve Christ, and then he grabs four no-name fishermen to follow him, to be his disciples. So who did Jesus pick? Well, the first half of this paragraph, verse 18 through 20, it mentions Peter and Andrew. You see it there? Peter and Andrew. Now, who are these men? These men are brothers. They are fishermen by, not hobby, but by trade. This is their life. This is their work. They're fishermen. They would go on to be leaders in the early church, right? Apostles of Christ, both of these men. Peter would go on to write parts of our New Testament, the God-breathed scriptures, God-breathed word of God. He would go on to write that. Now, now what, does, what does Jesus say to them? What does he say to them? Look at it in verse 19. He says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He, says, he looks at them and says, follow me. Come, follow me and I'll make you fishers. Fishers of men. Now, how do they respond? Verse 20. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. There's a negative side and a positive side. They leave something, they go somewhere. They leave their nets and follow him. This is not just like, hey, follow me for a day. You can come back to fishing tomorrow. This is leave that and come follow me. Come be my disciple. This is a radical move. They left their nets and followed Christ. Now, next we see the second half of the paragraph, verse 21 22. We've got James and John. Now, who are these guys? These guys are brothers. They're, again, they're fishermen, future leaders, apostles. I, I love it that Jesus gives nicknames. Jesus would nickname them, go on and nickname them the sons of thunder. Probably in reference to their zeal, the fire of these men. He called them sons of thunder. John would write a lot of the New Testament. James would go on to be one of the first martyrs of the church. And what does Jesus say to them? What well, says here in verse 21, he called them. I'm assuming he says something similar. He says, follow me. Come on, follow me. He called them. And how do they respond? Says it right there in verse 22. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. A negative and a positive. They left something and they followed Christ. This is not just let's go see, let's go to your house, see what you're doing for the day. No, no. This is they are they are becoming disciples of Jesus, turning away from their own life and their own pursuits and taking up the pursuits of Christ. They're becoming his disciples. Now I want us for a moment, just with this in mind, to consider the characteristics of a disciple. Okay, let's think about for a minute. Two characteristics 
of a disciple. What is a disciple of Jesus? And let's, from this passage, let's talk about two characteristics of a disciple of Jesus. Now, as we do this, keep in mind, we're not talking about characteristics of some elite super apostles. That's not the point here. It's not just, you know, just these elites. No, this is, think about Acts eleven twenty six. The disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So a disciple and a Christian is the same thing. The disciples are first called Christians and they're not. Disciple, Christian, same thing. So we're talking about characteristics of a Christian. This is not some elite force. This is just characteristics of a Christian. Two characteristics of a disciple of Jesus. Number one, they forsake all else and follow Jesus. They forsake all else and follow Jesus. Now you saw it right there in verse 20 and 22, right? They left their nest, they left their life, and they followed Christ. They forsake all else, and they follow Jesus. This is repentance and faith, in a sense. This is not merely a casual association with Jesus. This is, I'm leaving it all, I'm losing my life for you. This is not casual association or intellectual agreement with things that Jesus teaches. This is, no, 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 I'm leaving it and I'm following you. I'm a disciple of Christ. Now, this is all through the Gospels. This is Jesus' call to his people. This is his call to discipleship. And I just want to give you several verses that show that this is Jesus' radical call to discipleship. Let me read a few to you. Matthew chapter 10. Listen to verse 37 through 39. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Listen to this call. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The call of Jesus is not come casually associate with Jesus. Come be a part of the crowd. It's not that. It's lose your life and have Christ. Or keep your life and completely lose it in the end. Your choice. It's the call of Jesus. Let me give you another one. Luke chapter 9. This is verse 23 and 24. He says this. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it again. Take up your cross. Deny yourself. Come follow me. Lose your life and have me. Or keep your life and don't have me. It's a radical call of Christ. Luke 9 verse 57. Some examples here. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, to Jesus, they said, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, many of our churches would just baptize them right there. But Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, 
The birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Count the cost. You know what you're saying when you say you want to follow me? Keep going. To another, Jesus said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is a call to radical abandonment to Christ. Not casual association with Christ. This is the call to discipleship. Luke 14 verse 33 says, Whoever, if you do not renounce all that you have, you cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, verse 33. In other words, Christ will not have people casually associated with him. It must be radical abandonment abandonment to Christ. Total abandonment to Christ. Come to me, he says. And they leave all and they follow him. So this is the choice. So, so Peter and Andrew and James and John, they make that choice to follow Christ, to leave all and, listen, and, and respond to his call and follow Christ. What about you? Are you a disciple of Jesus? Have you answered that call to come follow me? Have you responded with radical abandonment to Christ that I'm yours? I lose my life for Christ. Are you a disciple of Jesus? Are you a disciple of Jesus? So much, so much of what's wrong with the society we live in is what I call the rich young ruler syndrome. The rich young ruler syndrome. You remember him, the rich young ruler? He wanted eternal life. He came to Jesus saying, what must I do to have eternal life? He wanted eternal life, but he didn't want discipleship. He wanted eternal life, but when Jesus said, go sell all you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me, he was sad and he went away without Christ. He wanted eternal life. And so many churches in our area would have baptized that man. And Jesus says, you must leave all and come after me. It's not just a desire for eternal life. It's an abandonment to Christ. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. And follow me, Jesus says. Are you a disciple of Christ? So, first characteristic of a disciple, forsake all, follow Jesus. Second characteristic, it says here in verse 19, fishers of men. Follow follow me, he says, and I will make you fishers of men. If you go read the the parallel passage in Luke chapter 5, verse 10, uh, uh, they just caught so many fish. Je- Jesus just allowed them to catch so many fish that their boats are beginning to sink. And Peter's broken before Jesus. And Jesus says, from now on, you will catch men. From now on, you will catch men. Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. This is a characteristic of a disciple. They are fishers of men. Now, Do you see this as a promise? Listen to the promise. Follow me. I will and I will make you fishers of men. In other words, 
Being a fisher of men is not just for elite Christians, an elite group. This is for all disciples, for all Christians. All those that follow Christ are becoming more and more fishers of men like their Savior. There's an old saying, if, you're, if you ain't fishing, you ain't following. It comes from that verse. If you ain't fishing, you ain't following. Or to say it more eloquently, Charles Spurgeon said, Have you no wish for others to be saved? Then you yourself are not saved. Be sure of that. There's this push, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. I'll make your heart begin to long for souls to be saved. You want them to be saved. You don't want them to go to hell. You want Jesus to be exalted in their life. So you go to them and be fishers of men. Mark Dever, he said, If you say you are following Jesus, but are not helping others to know and follow Jesus, then I don't know what you mean when you say, I follow Jesus. Now, why is he saying that? Because Jesus said, follow me. And here's what I do. I'm going to make you a fisher of men. Now, this is a perfect illustration that Jesus gives right here. This this illustration of fishing. Okay, think about it. Go, Go where the fish are. Go where are the fish? They're not in the trees. They're in the water. Go to the water. Go where the fish are. You can't see them, but you know the fish are there in that body of water. And, and cast the net. This is the kind of fishing we're talking about. You know, James and John were sitting there mending their nets. This is a net being cast out into the water. And as it sinks down and you pull up, sometimes fish are in the net. Sometimes you catch some fish. And sometimes you don't. Sometimes you don't catch fish. Now this illustration of casting the net and fishing, it it highlights our work and God's work in salvation. Our work, what we do in evangelism, and what God does in evangelism. It highlights both of these. Think about it. We have to be intentional to go. Nobody ever tripped in a lake and caught some fish. Okay? You got to go. Go, therefore, and make disciples. You got to get to where lost people are. You're being there intentionally with, with the intention to cast the net. What is the casting of the net? It's the preaching of the gospel. Cast the net with the preaching of the gospel. This is our job. This is what God calls us to as fishers of men. But only God can see what's underneath. Only God can put fish into the net. You cast a net out there, sometimes you get fish, and sometimes you don't. God is in control of what you catch. God is in control of salvation. Brothers and sisters, cast the net, preach the gospel. God saves souls. Our job is to cast a net. God's job and what he does is save lost souls. So Grace Community Church, brothers and sisters, examine yourself. Are you... Fishing for men. Maybe this would be a good time to, to sort of uh, self-examination and reorient for a minute and say, look, I've got this heart. I want to see soul safe. How can I be intentional about being in my life a fisher of men, a gospel proclaimer to make Christ know, to help other people come and follow Jesus? How can you, how can you lean your life in that direction? You can do it based off this promise. Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Now, third section, verse 23 through 25. We're about to read this. 
And this is Jesus becoming famous in Galilee. This is Jesus becoming famous in Galilee. Let's read it. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And what we see here in this first verse, verse 23, is this summary, this description, this summary of Jesus's public ministry. And what does it say there? We see teaching in the synagogue, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every affliction and disease. So what's what's the summary of Jesus's public ministry? He's teaching, proclaiming and healing, teaching, proclaiming and healing. Now, that's going to be repeated over in Matthew 925. Excuse me, 935. We read that very quick. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. So here he is. This is his public ministry, teaching, proclaiming and healing. Now, let's go through each one of those teaching. What did Jesus's teaching in those synagogues? What did that teaching look like? We get a little snapshot of it in Luke chapter four. I mentioned it a moment ago, you go read that parallel passage and it shows him in Nazareth, in the synagogue, someone hands him a scroll from Isaiah. He goes and finds in the scroll, reads the verse and begins to say things about that verse. This is Jesus teaching in the synagogues and it says that was his custom in Luke 4. Now you go read Acts 17 verse 1 through 3. It says that that was also Paul's custom. Paul would go somewhere. He would go into the synagogue. And it says that he would reason with them from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Okay? This is what his teaching ministry would look like. Now, what does that show us about Jesus? It shows us that Jesus saw the scripture as massively important. Massively important. Now, we know that throughout his life. Jesus is 12 years old in the temple, giving attention to the teachers there because the scripture is massively important to him at 12 years old. Throughout his earthly ministry, his, his custom is to teach the word of God in the synagogues. After he dies and he rises from the grave, he's walking up with those men on the road to Emmaus and he begins to open the scripture to them. It says, beginning at Moses and all the prophets. He starts at Genesis, goes all the way through Malachi, and he's showing them himself from the scriptures. He saw the scriptures as massively important. And this is his teaching ministry. And we know, if we think about his love for the scripture, anybody that is a follower of his would also have a love 
for the scripture, love for the word of God. Uh, John uh, 8.31, it says, you know that you're a disciple indeed because the word of God abides in you. You're a disciple indeed because the word of God abides in you. So, th- so think about his teaching ministry and this love for the scripture. Okay. Now, what about proclaiming? What did proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom look like? Well, it's the same thing that John the Baptist was doing. So same exact Greek word in Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. Whatever you got in your mind and that picture you had of John the Baptist proclaiming the truth to the masses, that's what Jesus did. That same word is used in Matthew 10 when it says, That what you hear and seek it, go and proclaim it from the housetops. So can you picture Christ heralding the truth to the masses, dealing with hecklers along the way as we read in the Gospels that he... He definitely had. Can you can you see can you see him doing that? Teaching takes deep wisdom, but proclaiming takes courage and boldness. And Jesus had it as he proclaims the truth like a herald to the nations. Now, what's he proclaiming? It says here in our verse, he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Now, think about those. So, verse seventeen, verse twenty-three. What did Jesus preach? He preached, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come. Okay, the, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Verse 23, he preached the, the gospel or the good news of the kingdom. Think about that comparison. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the good news of the kingdom. It's giving us this picture of what did Jesus preach? Did he preach the king? The king is here. Did he preach the Christ? Which was himself, yes. Check, he preached that. Did he preach repent? This is how you enter into the kingdom. Yes, but here's what verse 23 reminds us. That what he preached was gospel. He preached good news. That's what that word gospel means. It means good news. Jesus preached good news. Now why is the coming of the king, why is that good news? Because the king did not come to condemn He didn't come to condemn the world, John 3 says, but he came that the world might be saved through him. If Jesus would have just came and lived his perfect life and and, and, hey, this is how it's done, we would all burn in hell forever. We can't live up to that. But he didn't just come. He didn't come to condemn. He came to save. And that's why later on he'll go to a cross and he'll die for sinners and absorb the wrath of God for sinners and rise from the dead. He's the only Savior. And so when he preaches about the King has arrived, I am this Christ, I am this King, that is good news. He's come to save. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 1 Timothy 1.15 So what we see here is in his teaching, the scripture is massively important. In his proclaiming, the gospel is massively important to Jesus. And it's also important to all of those who would follow him, all those that would be his disciples. In fact, that same word is going to be used later on. Matthew 24, verse 14, when it says, This gospel of the kingdom must be proclaimed in all the world. As a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. That's our job. Teaching, proclaiming, healing. What did his healing look like? What did his healing ministry look like? 
Now, there were private healings he did, like uh, we know in, in Capernaum, but this time he uh, healed Peter's mother-in-law. So we know there were personal healings, right? But what it seems to be focusing on here is this, this public ministry of healing all diseases and all those who are afflicted. If you go read the, the cross-references or the, the parallel passage in Luke 4, it tells us that in Capernaum at this time, the whole city had gathered to where he was staying. Can you imagine that? He's healed some people. He's preached in the synagogue. And now the whole city is gathered at his door. And it says he healed all of them. I mean, this is not just like a, a, a little, you know, this person got healed. and this per- This isn't a small thing. This is like shutting down hospitals kind of stuff. This is like no more sick people in the city. All the sick people, all the demon-possessed people, all those with afflictions, all of them are healed. This is miraculous. It's a, it's a glorious thing. In fact, read it here again, verse 23. At the very end of verse 23, it says, And healing, look at it, every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. Look, people were bringing people in from, other, from another country. Look at this. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases, Pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures, paralytics, and he healed them. Can you imagine that? People bringing in the sick from all the surrounding regions, and he's just healing all of them. Now, what's the point of this? What's the point of this? All of this was meant to show who the Christ is. It's to identify that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. Now, if you remember in Matthew chapter, or when we get there, in Matthew chapter 9, the paralytic that was, they broke the roof and let the paralytic down right into the midst of the room, that crowded room. Remember that? You read that before? And before Jesus heals him, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And people all around are thinking in their own heads, blasphemy, only God can forgive sins. Who's this man to say his sins are forgiven? And then Jesus says this. He says, so that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, rise up and walk. The healing, the, the miracles, the, 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 this beautiful ministry of healing was meant to show this is the one that for, can forgive sins. This is the one that can heal you, not just on the outside, but on the inside. Have you ever thought about why Jesus did the kind of miracles he did? Have you ever thought about that? He could have done any miracles he wanted to. Jesus could have just freaked people out by levitating. Look at me, levitating. I'm the son of God. He could have done stuff that Moses did and turned and turn, you know, the Jordan River into blood. He could have done any miracles he wants to. But why does he open blind eyes, open deaf ears, raise the lame to walk again, raise the dead? Why these sort of miracles? He's telling us something. He's preaching something to us that this is the God that can can forgive sinners. He can open blind spiritual eyes, open deaf spiritual ears. He can raise the, the spiritually dead to new life in Christ. And these miracles and these healings are meant to put him on display. He is the Christ. He is the son of the living God. And so here's this, here's this ministry that Jesus has. Okay? Teaching, proclaiming, 
and healing. Okay? And in a sense, we need to imitate our Savior. Now, what I just described to you, we can't fully imitate our Savior, can we? But you, you can understand this. This ministry is a ministry. It, it's a ministry of wisdom, His teaching. It's a ministry of courage, His preaching. It's a ministry of compassion, His healing. We can imitate Him in wisdom of God's Word and love for the Word of God, love for the Gospel, boldness in proclaiming it, compassion and love for people. We can imitate our Savior in the ministries that we have. Now all of this, and you can imagine, all of this ministry led to verse 24. So His fame spread. Can you imagine it? Jesus famous in Galilee. So his fame spread. Look at verse 25. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea. And that's way down south. And from beyond, from beyond the Jordan. Now, I don't want you to miss the magnitude of this. This is massive. This is people coming from other countries, from distant lands. This is people traveling long distances when traveling was not easy. This is, this is people everywhere talking about this man from Nazareth. They're talking about it. What are they talking about? You remember when Jesus came to his disciples and he said, what are they, who do they say I am? He knows they're all talking about him everywhere. All the surrounding regions, even outside of Israel, they're talking about the man from Nazareth. What are they saying about him? They can't see his face. They don't know what he looks like, but they're talking about what he's teaching in the synagogues and what he's proclaiming and preaching and the healings and the miracles that he's doing. They're talking about the man from Nazareth. His, his fame is spread everywhere. His fame is spread everywhere. Now, here's a question. This fame is going to follow him throughout his three years of public ministry till his death and his resurrection. Why? Why did God, why did God want the Christ to be famous in the last three years before he dies, buried, and rises again? Why did he want him Famous. God was putting Jesus, God was putting the Christ under the heat of public scrutiny. In other words, his life was not a life in a corner. His life was a public life. His death was not some secret death somewhere. It was a public death, a famous death. His resurrection was a public resurrection. Many people Looking on to this man's life who lived and died and rose again. He put him purposely under the heat of public scrutiny. Now, what you think about that? His fame, his fame or his being under that public eye. It's a part of the convincing evidence that Jesus is who he said he was. Jesus claims to be the Christ. He claims to be the son of God. He claims to be God incarnate. And his fame is part of the convincing evidence that I believe him. He is who he said he was. I want you to think about this. He didn't do these things, these, these claims, these things he's doing. He didn't do them in a corner. When Paul was preaching to, to King Agrippa, he said that, Acts 26, 26. He says, I know you believe these things. These things weren't done in a corner. They weren't done in a secret place 
somewhere. Now you imagine somebody making these claims of miracles and healings and raising the dead and resurrection. Imagine somebody claiming that that's just completely out from under the public eye. And they come tell you all the things they've done. How do you respond? Nobody's seen this thing. I don't know that I can, I don't know if I can go with this. You doubt what he's saying. But, but now, imagine somebody always under the public eye, always under public scrutiny, and, and they are claiming these things. Now, if they're wrong, it comes out, right? Try to put that today. Let's say, let's say um, Donald Trump begins, you know, he's under, the, under public scrutiny, under the public eye. Let's say he shows up tomorrow and he tweets it out that I just healed a ton of people. I've been raising the dead. Last Tuesday, I raised the dead. And he begins to claim these miraculous things. Now, what can happen in that moment? He can be easily proved wrong because his whole life, his whole life is under the public eye. And here's Jesus, famous, under public scrutiny, under under the public eye. And And even his enemies do not deny that he did these miraculous works. They try to find another reason that the grave is empty, but they don't say that it wasn't empty. They have no way to refute. He's under the public eye. And and you see see, uh, his people in the book of Acts and 1 Corinthians, they begin to resort to this. They begin to say, look, Jesus died and he rose from the dead. There's 500 witnesses over there across the Sea of Galilee. Go ask them. Go ask them. This passage, all in all, is a beautiful passage about Christ. It tells us about Him being light. About Him making these disciples and who He chooses. About His fame and His ministry. This is a beautiful passage about Christ. Now I want to close by comparing two groups of people. Just close by comparing two groups of people. The crowds versus the disciples. Remember verse 25 right here. And great crowds followed him. Okay? So you got great crowds. So you go look up at verse 18 to 22, and you've got disciples. You got the crowds that are there with him and want to be there. But then you've got the disciples that have left all and they follow Christ. Listen to this from Leon Morris, commentator on this passage. He says this, listen, in Matthew, the crowds occupy a middling position, a middle position, a middling position. They're not opposed to Jesus like the Jewish leaders, but they're not adherents. As the disciples were. They hold a middling position. They're not opposed to Jesus. But they're not adherents. As the disciples are. And I want you to think about that for a minute. Compare these two, these two peoples. The crowds and the disciples. Are you a disciple of Jesus? Radical abandonment to Christ. Lose your life. To find it in Christ. Or. Are you just a part of the crowd? 
And you need to understand that that's possible, that it's possible to be unopposed. I'm unopposed to Jesus. In fact, I even like Jesus. I even favor Jesus. It's possible to enjoy going to church, to be around the Jesus crowd. It's possible to appreciate the teachings of Jesus, even agree with most of the teachings of Jesus. It's it's possible to be attracted to his miracles and even attracted to the teaching of his word and yet not be a disciple of Christ. That middling position of just being a part of the crowds, being, being loosely associated with Jesus. Sure, I'm a Christian, but not truly losing your life and following him. Now, it's a really, really dangerous. This is why I mentioned it's a very, very dangerous place to be. You become numb. At least, at least if you were not in the middle, you know, hot or cold and not lukewarm. At least if you were not in the middle, you wouldn't begin to feel numb to this gospel being preached to you again and again and again. It's a dangerous place to be. To be numb to the things of God. To just be a part of the crowd and then go to hell loosely associated to Christ. It's a dangerous, dangerous place to be. So let me leave you with that. Listen to me. From this passage of Scripture, Jesus is being exalted in this passage of Scripture. Jesus is worthy of more than church attendance. Jesus is worthy of more than a casual association with Him. He's worthy of total abandonment, supreme allegiance to Christ. And so I want to ask you that. Are you part of the crowds Are you a disciple of Jesus? Let's pray. God, I praise you that so many around this room, you have saved. So many, Lord, of my brothers and sisters, you you have stirred up their hearts and you helped them to see the the pitifulness of their sin, the, the wickedness of their sin. And you stirred their hearts to come and follow you. And they came, Lord. And they, they lost their life, life for you, Lord. I praise you for that. That you've done that all across this room. But Lord, I pray for any that are in that middle place, God. Of being around the things that concern you. Being in the crowd. But not truly knowing you. God, I pray you'd save them. Open their eyes, Lord, and save them. Bring them out of darkness. Bring them out of death. Lord, I pray that they wouldn't let pride stop them, Lord, but they'd humble themselves before You. That they would humble themselves before You. You are the Savior. You're the light. You're that great light shining in the thick darkness. We praise You, Lord. Lord, I pray that all here would confess you as Lord and follow you with all their hearts. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow.
Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And we all say, Amen. Amen.